Now hear God's holy word from 1 Samuel chapter 25 as we continue our study in this book. Samuel died and the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him and buried him at his home in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, we thank you for your word today. And as we study this episode in the life of your servant, David, we ask you to fill us with your Holy Spirit and empower us by your Holy Spirit that we might receive everything that we're being taught here. Strengthen us by your word. Feed us, we pray. Help me to articulate these things clearly. Uh, deliver us from all error. Deliver us from all distraction. And uh, may we be more and more conformed to the image of your Son, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm sure I'm not the only one who's noticed this or commented on it, but it seems that more and more in, in our society, we have this curious tendency to elevate and admire stupidity. It's as if wisdom and learning and cultured behavior is no longer something that we seek or attain or, or desire to have. It seems that at some point in distant Western civilization, you know, maybe a hundred years ago or so, it's not too distant, but it seems that at some point, learning and decency and propriety and self-control were sought after. It now feels as if the world is being run like a middle school boys locker room, that everything is run by 12 year olds. Uh, obnoxiousness is celebrated. Obnoxiousness is encouraged. Even as little as a uh, hundred years ago, the lower classes of society sought to imitate the upper class. They wanted to dress like the upper class. They wanted to speak like and have the manners of the upper class. They wanted to live with dignity and, and speak tastefully and learn manners, act like a grown-up. It didn't, it didn't matter if you had money, you had respect, respect for others, uh, respect for uh, those who deserved respect. Now, I'm speaking broadly, of course. I'm not, it's not head for head. There are exceptions. There have always been fools. There have always been obnoxious people, obviously. But the trajectory of society was upward. We want to we improve and act like we are you know, humans. We want to act like we uh, have, have some decency. But the trajectory, the trajectory was upward toward, upward toward improving yourself and those around you. But today, as a result of the social turmoil and the revolution of the 60s and 70s, everything has turned upside down. And now, you see, it's not the lower class who's trying to imitate the upper class. In every regard, it's the upper class who's trying to imitate the lower class in the way they dress, in the way they speak, in the way they, in the way they act. And, and those with money and those with station and those who ought to have manners and morals act as if they have none. They want to appear as if they don't care about anything. We're just unaffected. We are uh, distant. We, we don't show respect for others with our speech, with our dress, with our, with our manners. We don't develop habits that love our neighbors. So even the wealthiest act like children and dress like children and and speak like buffoons and embrace immaturity and stupidity. So that means for us, those who I pray, you, you're with me on this, we're seeking wisdom and we're seeking sound learning and we're seeking to understand God's law and how to live skillfully by applying God's law and God's wisdom. That means you and I are living our lives navigating 
uh, through a sea of laziness and we're navigating through a sea of carelessness and obnoxiousness and crass behavior every time we walk out the door or every time we're on the internet or, or uh, consuming media. We're in this ocean of obnoxiousness and foolishness and the, and the challenge for you and me and our children is to not absorb it, to not imitate it, to refrain from celebrating and participating in the mass epidemic of stupidity that we are awash in. We, we don't absorb it, we don't imitate it, and also we can't respond in kind. We must not respond sinfully to the foolishness. And this may be the most difficult task to know what is the right response to stupidity? What is the right response to foolishness? And it's at this point, this bad response to foolishness, it's at this point that David fails in this morning's text as we've been studying his life and his story to catch us up briefly and quickly. Uh, David has slayed Goliath. He has been a hero in Israel. The women and uh, young women are all singing praises to the name of David. Saul, though he first embraced David, has now rejected David. And David is wandering in the wilderness as a, as a vagabond, as a refugee, as somebody who's uh, is rejected by, uh, by Saul the king. Saul has been pursuing him to kill him. Last week we saw the episode in the cave where uh, David snuck up behind Saul and cut off the tassel, the corner, the wing of his robe. And then David immediately felt guilty about this because he was reaching out and he was defiling or desecrating the robe of the king. That's where we are now. It's immediately after this episode. And here today we'll see David as his heart struck him in last week's episode when he reached out and grabbed the robe of the king. So this week, David's heart is going to be struck again because he's going to rashly and sinfully respond to another man's foolishness. He's going to lose his temper and he comes close to losing everything that he's worked to establish because of the way that he is provoked to anger by a fool. And so I hope we can learn from his poor example here how not to respond to foolishness as we are in such uh, a sea of it. In, in order for us to not re repeat his sin, let's, let's seriously consider uh, what happens here and, and see what went wrong. The chapter opens on a sad note, and I only read one verse at the beginning. I normally read more, but just for uh, this morning, I, I wanted to capture this, this tone that is set at the beginning of this chapter that Samuel dies, and now with the, with the death of, of Samuel, we have a significant transition in the narrative of the book. Samuel, the old faithful prophet, the priest, has died. This whole story that we began way back in the first part of 1 Samuel, obviously was all about Samuel. This is his book. This is the book he wrote up to this point. And, and it's with Samuel that God began the project of renewing Israel out of the turmoil and the uh, confusion and chaos of the days of the judges and the horrible way that the house of Eli was leading Israel. Eli, the high priest, and his sons were corrupt. Uh, and, and the way that they were leading Israel was a mess. So it is Samuel that God brings into the middle of this situation to begin to rebuild and reform and restructure the society of Israel. Samuel was like a father 
to Saul, as you remember. Samuel anointed him king and mentored him. Samuel called Saul to repentance over and over. He corrected him. Samuel was also the priest who anointed David as king to replace Saul. Samuel has been all these years functionally serving as high priest in Israel. He was not the high priest. Uh, there, the, the house of Eli was still in existence. But functionally, Samuel has been the high priest all these years. And now the high priest has died. So if you know God's law, you know that in, um, in, in the order that God has prescribed for Israel, the death of the high priest kicks off all kinds of, of, of provisions. When, when the high priest dies, there, there are some things that kick in. Uh, all the blood guilt now has been accounted for. It's all, it's, all, it's all been removed. The cities of refuge, remember, empty out when the high priest dies. The refugees can return home. It's as if the death of the high priest cleanses and resets the land. It's like everything is, is rebooted when the high priest dies. When Aaron, the high priest, dies in Numbers 20, it's at that point that the wandering in the wilderness, that period of Israel's history, is over. It ends with the death of Aaron, and now the wanderers can go in and take the land that God has given them. It's at that point that Israel begins to conquer the land of promise. So, of course, all of this points to Jesus as the high priest. When Jesus dies, the whole world gets a new start. The world is cleansed and the time of wandering is over. And that's, that's what this all points to. Well, here, the death of Samuel is going to mean, it's going to mean a reboot. It's going to mean a new start, a, a new opportunity for David. He has been, for this period of time, wandering in the wilderness, running from Saul. This is going to mean that he can come back to the land. He's been like a refugee, but now he can dwell in the fruitful land again. And one of the reasons he can do this is because at the same time Samuel dies, God has also pacified Saul. You remember at the last, at the end of the last chapter, Saul is humiliated and humbled that David has reached out and taken the corner of his robe without him knowing about it. And then Saul peacefully goes back to his own house. Saul is pacified after being terrified by David. So David is not running for his life right now. It's like David gets a breather. But what happens in the Bible every time we get a fresh start? Every time there's a new creation, what, what happens? There's a new fall. Every single time we get a new, a new start, we immediately mess it up. And this is no exception. David is going to mess up and he's going to be driven right back out of the land. God is going to stir up Saul again. And Saul is going to come back against David because of David's failure in what we're about to see and read. So the next couple of verses set the scene. And, and this is another one of those lengthy chapters that it, there's just no way to break this up. So we're going we're gonna to dive in and read through the, the entire chapter, and I will stop at, at significant points to, uh, to make some comments. So verse 2, now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. So there's a man with great wealth and his wife who does business in Carmel. Carmel means fruit garden. 
So we have a man and a woman in a fruit garden. Have you seen this before? Yeah, we, we see this over and over. Uh, a man and a woman in a fruit garden. He's got 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. Job was called the wealthiest man in all the east, and Job had 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels. So this man was about a third as wealthy as Job, who was the richest man in all the east. So if Job was Bill Gates, this man is more like Rupert Murdoch. You know, he's wealthy. He's, he's not the most wealthy man in the world, but he's extremely wealthy uh, by comparison. He's very wealthy, but he's got a terrible name, and he's got an awful reputation to go along with his terrible name. His name is Nabal, which is the Hebrew word for fool. I can't imagine that this is what his mother called him when he was born. I can't imagine this is the name his mother and father gave him. This had to have been a nickname that stuck, or, or maybe it was a slur that everybody called him behind his back, and then it just ended up being one of those things that, you know, every, you know how nicknames stick. This is what everybody calls him, though. Even his wife calls him this, without, without even a, a hint of irony. When she talks about him, she calls him Nabal. Uh, this is his name. Well, Abigail, on the other hand, his wife, is a woman of good understanding. So you've got a fool married to a wise woman. She's a woman of good understanding. The Bible says she's beautiful, she's noble, she's lovely, she's graceful, she's wise. Wisdom is attractive, and she's attractive, and she's wise. And yet, this attractive, lovely, wise woman is married to this ogre of a man who the scriptures describe as harsh and evil and a fool. Now, understand, when we use the word fool in the biblical sense, this is a weighty word. This, this word doesn't mean silly. It doesn't mean goofball. This word is heavy. And so this is why Jesus says, don't get uh, lost in your temper. Don't, don't lose your mind and call your brother a fool. Jesus says, don't, don't do that. Because the fool, as the Bible describes, oh, what, what do we read about the fool? Well, the fool says in his heart that there is no God. Uh, foolishness is a rejection of God's law. It's a rejection of God's order and God's rule. Foolishness is the casting off of all of God's authority. So again, it's no surprising in our society, which has pushed God out of every public arena, is so rife with foolishness. That's why there's so much stupidity. That's why there's so much obnoxiousness is because there's no fear of God. Uh, and that's how it works. But, but again, foolishness is not mere silliness in the, in the biblical sense. The Proverbs tell us, in, and this is just a compilation of what the Proverbs say about the fool. The Proverbs say, the fool hates knowledge. He despises correction. He's lazy. The fool is crooked. The fool is careless. The fool is quick to anger, always looking for a fight. Breaking God's law is like a joke to the fool. It's all, it's all a big laugh for the fool. All of this, all of this is packed into Nabal's name and it describes him. And he had to have been an incredibly frustrating, obnoxious person to deal with and to live with as Ab Abigail well know, uh, knew and as we're about to see. Verse 4. So when David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent 10 young men and David said to the young men, go up to Carmel, go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, peace be to you, peace to your house, peace to all you have. 
Now I've heard that you have shearers, your shepherds were with us and we did not hurt them, nor there was anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, my young men find favor in your eyes for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son, David. So when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David and they waited. Uh, David is in the land of Judah, where Nabal's interests lie, where Nabal's lands are, where Nabal does his business. And David and his men, all this time, we've seen him do this already with uh, various places and cities. David has been protecting the wealth of Judah from the marauding Philistines. It takes a lot of food and it takes a lot of supplies to keep an army going. And David's army David's army is growing by about 200. Every time we get a number, uh, we, we see that the army has grown. And he needs, he needs a lot of supplies. And so David sends his young men to make an appeal to the wealthiest man in the county, so to speak. And David says, when you have your big festival, like you do every year this time of year, would you let us join you in the party and let us share some of your food? Let us share in the feast. David says, be sure to tell him that the whole time we've been here, we have protected his shepherds and we've protected his flocks and we haven't taken a single thing from him. We haven't asked for anything. We haven't taken anything. We have never injured this man and we haven't hurt a single one of his men. We have dwelt with you in peace this whole time. And so David says, young men, go and take this message. Well, how does he respond? Verse 10, Nabal answered David's servants and said, who is David and who's the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each one from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men whom I do not know where they are from. True to form, Nabal gives a foolish response. He, he starts with, who's David? Who's the son of Jesse? Oh, you know, Nabal, the man that all the girls are singing about all the time, everywhere, as they go everywhere, they're always singing about David. You know that guy who killed Goliath? You know, I mean, here we are 4,000 years later and we know who David is. Nabal, you know who David is. He's, he's just being a fathead. He's, he's being a total lunkhead. David, you know, the 10th generation from Judah, the 10th descendant of Judah, who we all know is going to be the next king. If you've been reading your Bible, you know Nabal, he's gonna be the next king. Oh, he's also the guy who's been protecting your people. He's also the guy who's been delivering your land and, and your flocks from the Philistines. Who is David? Seriously? You, you really going to ask that question? Who is David? And, it, and as if that weren't insulting enough, he accuses David of being a runaway slave. He says, oh, many servants these days break away from their masters. What, what is he accusing there? He says, David is just another vagabond. David is just another runaway servant. And, and then he talks, Nabal talks as if everything belongs to him. He says, my bread, my water, my meat. He, he sounds like a three-year-old who's saying, mine, mine, mine. He's ignorant, he's arrogant, he's selfish, he's obnoxious, he is a fool. What do you do with a guy like this? Short of knocking him in the head with a two-by-four or a tire tool. I mean, that's just about all you can do with a guy like this. 
David's son, Solomon, is going to write a lot about what you do with a fool in uh, the book of Proverbs. And you can sum up everything that pretty much is said about how you deal with a fool with one word, and that's leave. Uh, on maybe some rare occasion, you answer a fool according to his folly, but more often than not, you go from the lips of one who doesn't speak wisdom. You leave over and over, we're told, to just don't have anything to do with him. But that's not what David does. David doesn't like this answer that he gets from Nabal. Verse 12, so David's young men turned on their heels and went back. See, they leave abruptly. They come and they get this answer and they turn on their heels and went back and they came and told David all these words. Then David said to his men, every man gird on his sword. So every man girded on his sword and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went with David and 200 stayed with the supplies. Uh, no doubt Nabal is a walking disaster of a human being. And so far in this passage, we might think that Nabal is the problem here. We might think Nabal is the, is the issue in this chapter, but really we're about to find David is, David is the problem. His response to Nabal here is rash and foolish and, and wicked. David loses his temper. When he hears what happens, his first response is, get your swords. Put on your swords, guys, and they know what's about to take place. We're going to go take care of business. We're going to teach Nabal and his servants a lesson at the point of a sword. But there's an intervention. Something stops this from happening. Verse 14, one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. But the men were very good to us and were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us, both by night and day, all the time we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider what you will do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his household, for he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. One of the young servants goes to fill Abigail in on what's happening. And he testifies, David has been good to our people. They were like a wall of protection around our men and our herds. They, they, they've taken care of us. They've looked out for us. Now they're coming to kill us. Wise Abigail, he says, it's up to you to help us because Nabal is a scoundrel. It's that literally, he's a worthless man. He's a son of Belial. And this servant appeals to Abigail to take action. Verse 18, then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of bread, two jugs of wine, five sheep already dressed, five seahs of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. And she said to her servants, go on before me. See, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. Now, the fact that she's got all this food at her disposal shows just how wealthy this family is and how many servants she has helping her to get all this ready. This was likely all party food that was prepared for this big sheep sharing festival. And she takes a portion of that and sends it to David to appease his anger. She does what her husband should have done. And she does this to counteract her husband's folly. And this is her glory. She's going to be blessed for this. This is, this is her honor. She actually, she actually spares David and saves him because of what, what she does. 
there's this warped perspective on marriage that implies, though we all agree that, that man is the head of his wife, a man, his duty is to lead his wife in honor and righteousness and holiness to the Lord. But there's this warped sense, uh, this warped uh, uh, perspective on marriage that implies that a woman must submit to her husband even when he's leading her in sin or when he's doing something that's destructive to the family. That it's just her job to keep quiet and go along and, and, and keep the peace. But a husband's authority is never absolute. He must submit to God's authority over him. And when he's clearly in sin, as Nabal is here, she must oppose his sin. The Bible gives us these female heroes of the faith who are heroic because of the way they expose their husband's foolishness and, and the, way that, the way that Rebecca exposes Isaac's foolish intent to bless Esau rather than Jacob. Like Jael, who undermines Heber's wicked alliance. Tamar exposes Judah's adultery and abuse. Her, her glory, her, her, uh, her uh, lack of, of going along with his foolishness is her glory. Her husband's passivity is his shame. And it is to Nabal's shame that she has to do this and make this decision. That's what Abigail does here, though, and she does it with a generous gift that puts her husband's little miserly heart to shame. And now she's caught between her moron of a husband and David's advancing army, David's rage and, and his army. Verse 20. <clears throat> So it was, as she rode on the donkey, that she went down under cover of the hill, and there were David and his men coming down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him. And he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so, and more also to the enemies of David, if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. Uh, David is fuming and cursing the whole time he's on his way to Nabal's. Have you ever gotten so angry about something that you just kind of feed your own anger and you're talking to yourself the whole time? I can't believe he's, who's, who's David? Did he really say that? Did he say, who's David? Did he, and he said, my, my sheep? Huh? He wouldn't have any sheep if I went out there protecting. Just over and over and over, getting so angry, getting himself worked up about it and getting more irate every time he passes through that. Did, did he really say that? I can't believe he said that. Uh, so David makes this crass oath. He calls God to witness for him if he leaves one male alive in the city by morning, except he doesn't say male. Our, if you have the ESV or the New King James, as I just read, it cleanses that. It says, it says male. Do you remember what the King James, the old King James says there? Uh, look it up later if you want something entertaining this afternoon. He says, uh, I'm not going to leave one who urinates against the wall alive by the end of the day. That's literally what he says. He doesn't, he doesn't say male. Uh, what is he talking about? One who urinates against the wall. Well, there are laws in Israel about going to the bathroom outside the camp. This is an unclean practice. This is an act of public defilement. You don't, you don't do this. So he's saying, he's saying these men are like dogs, that's what Nabal and his men are like. They're like dogs. And also Nabal, we read at the very beginning of this chapter, Nabal is of the house of Caleb. Caleb's name 
what does Caleb mean? Caleb is dog. Uh, Caleb was a, a good dog. Caleb was a mighty dog. But uh, it, it may be a family slur against the house of Caleb. You know, those Calebites, they're just like dogs. David, the sense that, that we're supposed to get here is David is fuming and he is cursing. And, and he is, he's building, he's working himself up in anger as he draws near to the house of Nabal. But here comes Abigail, verse 23. Now, when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David, and bowed down to the ground. So she fell at his feet and said, on me, my Lord, on me, let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now, therefore, my Lord, as Yahweh lives and as your soul lives, since Yahweh has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek harm for my Lord be as Nabal. And now this present, which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord." Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant, for Yahweh will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord fights the battles of Yahweh, and evil is not found in you throughout your days. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life, but the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with Yahweh your God, and the lives of your enemies. He shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. She says, God is going to sling your enemies out like a, like, like a stone out of a sling. And that should be an image that resonates with David. And it shall come to pass when Yahweh has done for my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and has appointed you ruler over Israel, that this will be no grief to you, nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause, or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when Yahweh has dwelt, dealt well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. Can you imagine this woman stopping an army of 400 angry, hungry men? And as she rides her donkey right up to the front, right up to the vanguard, and she lights off her donkey, and she bows herself before David. And they all come to a screeching halt in front of her and stop where she is. And she courageously uses two arguments to stop David in his tracks and to lay aside his anger. His first, her first argument is, David, if you go through with this, you're going to destroy your reputation. If you wipe out Nabal at his house over an insult, David, that makes you Nabal. That makes you a fool. That makes you a bully. It makes you look as if you haven't been serving Yahweh by protecting Judah from Philistia. If you lash out because someone doesn't share his bread and his wine, it makes it look like you're running a protection racket, David. Like you're some mafia boss, you know? Hey, I'll protect you from those Philistines if, if you give me some of your wine and bread, you know? It's, it's, I'll help you out, you know? It's like he's some mob boss. And Abigail says, no, that's not the way this goes. If that news gets out, David, you're done. You're going to lose your position. You're going to lose your honor in Israel. And if you wipe out Nabal's house, you're no better than Saul who has made war on his own people. If you lose your temper, David, and you start throwing spears at everyone who offends you, how does that make you different from Saul? How does that make you different from Nabal? That's, that's her first argument. Her second argument is if you go through with this, it's going to be a constant source of grief 
and a constant source of guilt. You are never going to get over this. Even if God does make you king, you're going you're, you're, you're gonna to be plagued by this. The, the way that Uriah's death later is going to haunt him. This is going to be something that you'll never recover from, she says. Incredibly, miraculously, the Lord changes David's heart through the words of Abigail. He listens and he stops. And this is why he's not a fool. It's because David can be humbled and David can listen. This is something Saul never did. This is something obviously Nabal didn't do. And I'm sure Abigail was shocked when he said, wow, a man listens to me and, and is convicted when I say that, you know, what he's doing is foolish. I'm sure she never had that experience with her husband. Verse 32, David said to Abigail, blessed is Yahweh God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed is your advice and blessed are you because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as Yahweh God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning light, no males would have been left to Nabal. So David received from her hand what she brought to him and said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. She is Lady Wisdom here, and he listens to her, and he, he follows her thoughtful, careful, wise instruction, and David's wrath is turned away. Now we come to the end of Nabal's story when Abigail gets back home. Verse 36, Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Therefore she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. So it was in the morning when the wine had gone from Nabal and his wife had told him these things that his heart died within him and he became like a stone. Then it happened after about 10 days that Yahweh struck Nabal and he died. When Abigail gets home, there's a big drunken party going on. Everything's in full swing. Nabal is three sheets to the wind. And so she wisely decides, I'm not going to say anything about what happened here while he doesn't have his wits about him. But in the morning, when the wine had gone out of him, when he's hung over and when he's subdued, she tells him everything that just transpired with David. And as soon as she tells him the story, the Bible says his heart died within him. His heart became like a stone. I don't know if he was psychologically paralyzed by what she said or whether uh, he had a stroke. But something happened to him and he died. And, and it's sort of like the feeling that Saul had when he heard David's voice coming down the mountain. Oh my goodness, I, I came this close to dying. I came this close to being destroyed. But Nabal lives for 10 days. The Lord gives him 10 more days to repent, but he doesn't. And the Lord strikes him and he dies. It's also a matter of fact. <laughs> the Lord struck him, and he died. David, you see, there really was no need for you to throw your hissy fit. The Lord knows what he's doing when it comes to fools. The Lord can take care of Nabal's, and when God says it's over, it's over. No problem. God doesn't need your help, David, to wipe out fools. The Lord takes care of all this for David. The Lord sends Abigail to stop him. He sends her with wisdom and he sends her with food. He stops David in his tracks and he keeps David from sinning 
He protects David's reputation. He protects David's conscience. He protects David's soul. He eliminates the opponent for David. All David has to do to everything that God has done for him to this point, all David has to do is give thanks and respond righteously. Except he doesn't. David, David, it's like he's determined, I've got to find a way to mess up here. You know, God has done all this stuff for me and he's protected me and he's kept me from foolishness, but there's still, still got to be one way I can really mess this up really bad. And he does. Verse 39. So when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be Yahweh, who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from evil. For Yahweh has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. And David sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as wife. When the servants of David had come to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her saying, David sent us to you to ask you to become his wife. Then she arose, bowed her face to the earth and said, here is your maidservant, a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. So Abigail rose in haste and rode on a donkey attended by five of her maidens. And she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel. And so both of them were his wives. But Saul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was from Galen. David knows that this is forbidden. He knows that you can't have more than one wife. God at creation said the two shall become one flesh. In Leviticus 18, 18, the law forbids a man from marrying two daughters of Israel. In Deuteronomy 17, 17, God expressly forbids the king from having more than one wife. David knows that he's gonna be king and he knows better than this. He knows that this is forbidden. Saul sinned against David by taking his wife from him. He shouldn't have done that. But now David pops up with two more wives. David reaches out his hand in Carmel in the fruit garden. David reaches out his hand in the fruit garden and takes something that is forbidden, something God has not given him. And this is David's fall. Everything was kind of calming down. Everything was, was becoming peaceful. But now an evil spirit is gonna stir up Saul. And of course, when you fall, you get kicked out of the garden. And so now David is going to get kicked out of the garden. He's going to be driven outside the land to go live among the Philistines. Sin is so frustrating when we watch it in other people. When you see other people miss, messing up from a distance. You say, I can't believe what, what they're doing. It's like, it's like they're hitting themselves in the head with a hammer. You just want to say, stop, stop doing this to yourself. We see this in David. We say, oh no, this is just so bad. Why did you pick now to do this? If only we had the same perspective on ourselves. We have so many blind spots when it comes to our own failures and sins. How much do we all need the perspective to be able to see this in ourselves? How are we shooting ourselves in the foot? How are we trampling on the blessing of God? How are we taking for granted the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus by our high-handed foolishness? Uh, well, we see it in David, and, and the more we understand God's word, the more we can see this in ourselves. Two takeaways. One, Nabals are dangerous. And you have to be wise and you have to be careful around fools. And we live in a land and we live in a society of Nabals. There's no question about it. We live uh, with fools. Proverbs warns us about how we're to deal with Nabals. We have all these warnings because it's easy to be provoked and overreact the way that David was provoked. And it's easy to respond foolishly uh, the way David did. 
Now when we do that, when we respond this way, we're the Nabal. David was the Nabal when he responded this way. When what David intended to do to this man's house was worse than Nabal's sin. Nabal was, was stupid and arrogant. David was murderous, and that makes him the greater fool. At most, what David should have done was have a simple man-on-man confrontation. Just, Nabal, look, I've been protecting you. Can my guys come to your feast? Are you going to say that to my face? You're going to say, who am I? Really? That was what was in order. But David escalated the situation. Because Nabal's response was so frustrating, David lost his temper. And this is what happens. Nabals are obnoxious and they're frustrating. So you, child of God, must be careful in dealing with fools. Learn wisdom. Pray for wisdom. Grow in wisdom because Nabals are everywhere. And you're going to have to get good and you're going to have to get better at responding to Nabals. Secondly, in the joy of victory and then the joy of deliverance, it's easy to fall into sin. In times of great blessing, we're, we're, we're open to a particular kind of temptation, that, that naive idea that, oh, things are going so well now, nothing can go wrong. I can't mess everything up because everything's going so well. The world is our oyster and everything's just going to work out no matter what we do. Both Abigail and David are exuberant. They're excited. He's delivered them from disaster. He's delivered Abigail from this ogre of a man. She's delivered from being married to this fool. But they both use this blessing as an opportunity to sin. Since her husband was dead, she was free to remarry just not to a married man. I'm sure she would have made a fine wife for any one of David's mighty men. Or or she could have just stayed in Carmel and waited for the right man and waited for the right opportunity. But God forbade what they did, and they did it anyway. And they sinned right in the face of God, who had just done all these amazing things for them. David is starting to do something here that's going to plague him for the rest of his life. David, we've read about him. He's so handsome. He's so charming. He's so full of life. He's so brave that women really love him. (laughs) Women loved David. And he's going to exploit that. He's going to exploit that gift. And he's going to exploit them. And he's going to build political alliances through his marriages. As if all these alliances are necessary for God's kingdom to thrive. No, God's kingdom is built on obedience to God's law, not on alliances of man. But by the time David is crowned king, he has six wives, which just sets him up for the horrible failure with Bathsheba that's going to come later. At that point, when when it comes to Bathsheba, he's just used to taking whatever he wants. He's just used to seeing something he likes and having it for himself. And that's what he starts with here. That's where it begins. And his sons grow up following his example. And it ultimately ends up wrecking the kingdom in such a way that the kingdom never recovers. And it starts right here. And it has generational uh, impact and generational results. Where does the heartache start? Here, in a moment of exuberance, when he lets his guard down, he ignores the clear commands of God's word, and he starts collecting wives. The wise man knows his own vulnerabilities. The wise man knows his temptations. And in a moment of exuberance, in a moment of excitement, he can control himself and understand God forbids that. It doesn't matter what else is going on. I am not disobeying. I'm not doing that. The wise man is also united to the greater David, the greater king. 
the only one who can truly be trusted with the kingdom, Jesus. Jesus, who had to deal with hostile nayballs his entire life. And Jesus never lashed out. Jesus never responded with murderous threats. He corrected fools. He called them out. He exposed their folly. He wasn't always uh, 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 soft-spoken, not at all. But he never lost his temper. He never became irate or out of control. Even, even at the temple, when he's knocking over the tables, this is, this is, he's acting as an agent of God's judgment, but he's not out of control. He's not, he's not filled with rage the way that David is here. That's the king we follow, who deals with Nabal's uh, in a uh, way that, that elevates rather than gets down and, uh, and, and becomes a fool himself. This is our Lord. This is our Savior. And David just serves to contrast him here at this point. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would give us grace and wisdom to navigate this life. Prevent us from foolishness, we pray. Guard us, we ask you. And, and give us wisdom and insight and uh, discretion when we deal with foolish men. Uh, Father, guide us and prevent us from the kind of uh, destructive behavior that David engaged in here. Father, lift us up and make us more and more like your son, Jesus. Conform us to his image, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.